This kind of continual race for short-term efficiency, it's causing the processes to be put in place or the pressures to constantly be driving for the lowest cost method to execute the short-term goal and task and challenge. And in that whole process, we're losing our humanity. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duran Jr., In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to another episode. This week, we welcome Mike Kester to the show. Mike is an alumni of the President's Leadership Class and of CU Boulder. He recently founded and launched his own leadership development program for millennial new managers called Lead Belay. The premise of the program is that there are many young professionals out there being thrown into leadership roles today without adequate or impactful training. He and his company have tried to find a way to provide a high impact, very affordable option for these folks so that they can learn and practice their leadership skills outside of the office. Before founding Lead Belay, Mike was co-president of the Regis Company for 11 years, where he was using neuroscience principles, experiential learning, and technology to create custom leadership programs for Fortune 500 companies. I have to admit, as I was doing research for our guest today, I got pretty excited, and I think Tara did too. Uh, your, Your background... Basically, we have Michael Kester here with us today, and his background is quite uh, interesting and impressive. And so, as a former buff as well, I, I like I always like to say I, I bleed black and gold. So I, I always like to talk to former buffs. But tell us, Mike. Let's let's kick this off with uh, tell us a little bit about your leadership journey and and how did you end up where you're at now? Yeah, thanks, Ron, and thank you both, Ron and Tara, for for having me here today too. Um, my leadership journey really did start at CU. I mean, in high school, I had kind of small traditional leadership roles and responsibilities, things that were building the resume to kind of get into college um, and get into PLC. But PLC was formative for me. That's where it really started. And, and some of my closest friends today are people that, that I met through PLC, including the executive director at the time, a guy named Adam Goodman, who now runs leadership development at Northwestern University. He's one of my close friends and advisors, and uh, that that really set me off on a chain of of leadership exploration and doing different things at first as a student, and then then in the real world, kind of beyond college. So at CU, the first thing I, one of the first leadership roles I took on, kind of outside of just being in PLC, was with another friend, a guy named Jason Petrovsky, and we restarted a defunct club called the International Relations Forum. And uh, it was it was a chance to be able to get some funding and send a team to Harvard for this national model U- UN conference and competition. So it was a great trip for us and a fun endeavor. Then from there, I got this student government, ended up running for the Legislative Council of UCSU, later was a tri-exec, I ran against the person who actually encouraged me to get into student government, a guy named Brad Dempsey, who's on the PLC board today, a good friend. But then after leaving college, I was struck by how 
poor the leadership was around me. My first job out of college was with a company called Lima Brothers. You might have heard of, not around anymore. And uh, it was it was striking how how bad people treated one another and what people kind of expected or, or what what they didn't expect in terms of uh, both just humanness and connection and decency, much less quality leadership. Let me interrupt real quick and say. For those of our listeners that don't know PLC, I know at CU we throw around this acronym a lot. PLC is President's Leadership Class. Continue, Michael. So ended up, law school was not a great fit for me. I, I got a lot out of it. It was a good experience in many ways. Um, went into management consulting, went to work for McKinsey Company out of law school, um, which that was probably the first place in my professional life that leadership started to mean something. McKinsey has probably the best of the best corporate development programs for leadership. So they would send you off to these two week programs that you'd come back and, and be kind of invigorated around all kinds of leadership principles and the values of the firm. But I also kind of had to grapple with the, the contrast between those messages and those programs and still the way that some people behaved and, and what, what they exhibited in the workplace. So I didn't intend to build a career around leadership development or end up in this space. And it was very happenstance. So ended up leaving McKinsey, partnered with a friend who had an e-learning company at the time, later merged it with a business called the Regis Company. Uh, Regis built really high-end business simulations for huge companies. So we did work with a lot of the big four. Um, McKinsey was a client, worked with McDonald's, Abbott, really big companies that could afford to spend a quarter million dollars or more building programs. And it evolved gradually into being these learning programs of all types, teaching people about business concepts to be more centered in, in the leadership space and leadership development. And it was fantastic. We could attract great people, build, we built a fantastic, amazing culture. The work was, was uh, incredibly interesting and a lot of fun. The problem was after doing that for about 10 years, it wasn't. It didn't feel aligned with my own personal sense of purpose and mission. It was kind of building stuff that was really reserved for the, the select chosen few of the biggest companies in the world. That was effectively my journey, though, into into the space. I wow. love, yeah, I love that you have the experience, uh, and we could all be so lucky to <laughs> learn our our current leadership development skills from at first, really terrible leadership examples, and then go to a company where you learn the good stuff, right? So you have the yeah. spectrum of, you know, the good and the bad. Also, then you you also went on to work um, for the Regis Company, which is a fantastic company and actually working in a realm that is really appealing to both Ron and I, both at the university where we work and also in our company, Forging Metal. And that's using neuroscience principles around leadership. And we're just wondering, can you share a little bit just to give us kind of a background of where you come from? Uh, what are some of the elements that, uh, that you developed into the leadership programs using those neuroscience principles? Yeah, there are there a lot of things. Um, you know, one is just the concept. If you've read Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast and Slow, he talks about system one and system two thinking. That was really pivotal to, to a lot of the work that we did because people, you're not learning unless you're in system two, unless you can really kind of shake people out of just habit-based thinking or action. So for us, a really great program was kind of getting people into system two thinking. So they're looking at things differently. 
but then giving them the breaks. You can't be in system two thinking really effectively for more than a few hours a day, certainly not a few hours at a time. So kind of building programs that ratcheted up the thinking, kind of got them really working hard with their brain and then giving them the breaks. That was kind of one core concept. Now, another was you're not gonna learn or really retain or, or apply things in your own world unless you're generating your own insights. So getting people to self-generated insights was central to everything we did. And that was the whole simulation concept. We're, we're creating the environment for people to explore, think about how they fit into a bigger system and start to realize, oh, if I act in this way, it's gonna have this repercussion on a secondary or tertiary basis. Um, so kind of getting the, training the, kind of leading people, leading the horse to water, so to speak, but they've got to, they got to drink. And then giving people autonomy in the learning. It's another critical neuroscience concept. If you, if you believe you have choice, first of all, to be there. And second, in the way that the learning progresses, it's going to be far more impactful than if you're told to be there or you don't think you have much choice. So there's a big leap of faith that's required to do all of these things, though, in the design of a program. So creating the context where people should be able to learn, but frankly, if they're not engaged, they're, they're probably not going to, and taking that, taking that leap in the design approach. We ended up actually hiring a cognitive neuroscientist. Her name's Dr. Grace Jang at Regis, so she's one of my advisors now, too, and a very close friend. Uh, she's at Ernst & Young in their learning innovation group currently but she helped to really sharpen our design approach, leveraging a number of neuroscience principles, including some of those. Oh, that's, that's so awesome. As Tara said, we, we like this kind of thing. I teach a class called neuroleadership. Um, I have, uh, you know, back in the nineties, we had what we called the year of the, or the decade of the brain. And I've coined the term, I think the 2020 is gonna be the neuro decade. I think we're gonna see a lot more of this idea of how do we bring neuroscience into this so I think what you're doing is quite fascinating. What, you know, the, the, the idea of, of, you know, I like to use the, the term work in sprints, you know, work hard for X amount of time. And usually that's a lot smaller time than we think. And then we got to take a break. We got to let our brain rest. So it sounds like you're, you're teaching that kind of an idea. Let's, um, one thing that, that jumps out from what you said is autonomy. I'm a big believer in autonomy. I know as an employee, I liked it when I had autonomy. And, and I feel like it's just a simple concept that, that we don't see it widespread. At least I, I don't feel like we see it widespread in, in corporations. Why do you think that is? And maybe, well, let me start with this. Do you agree with me that it's not widespread? And then if not, why don't we see that more? Well, I don't think we see it in a lot of larger companies that are well-established and have built a lot of policies, procedures, um, kind of operational efficiencies in a way of doing things um, because that serves the short-term goal of increasing profitability. So once they kind of get product market fit, once they start to run and, and scale and, and build up and they just layer in the, the how to think stuff, like the, the how, to, how to execute and how to get things done, it starts to get crushed out of a culture. And then you have a, a reinforcing loop that you start to attract people who are looking for the playbook and then you start to lose people who really want the autonomy in some respects. Um, I think we, we all do, to, to, well, the, the research shows we all want autonomy at some level, but when you're feeling uncertain or insecure, it's really good to have somebody kind of telling you exactly what's expected of you to be successful. So the bigger companies get and the more kind of ingrained in their, their market, the more they fall into that, that trap. 
And there's been a lot of research and writing about why big companies really can't innovate, and that's central to it. So when you start taking the autonomy away and start telling people what to do, and you start outsourcing individual elements of the work, kind of breaking it up into small discrete parts and not giving people much flexibility, how can you innovate? The organization has lost its ability to do that. And the individuals aren't given the flexibility to do it. So it's just the, the way things evolve. Jeff Bezos actually is famous for talking about this, like companies that are day one versus day two thinkers. And once you move to that day two, you're moving towards death and towards stasis and eventual death. Um, kind of holding on to that level of innovation is hard. Um, I'm not sure if you've read or book Lean Startup and Eric Reese's work. He talks a lot about what organizations can do to kind of keep constant innovation and and at least have experiments and measure things differently. I'd never thought of a, autonomy being connected to innovation. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, if people aren't given the latitude to, to really think creatively and mm-hmm. rewarded mm-hmm. for it and to take risks, try different things, fail, then uh, how's the organization going to innovate? So there's all this, for all the talk about fail fast and uh, kind of agile principles, design thinking principles, if you don't really let people fail, and, and then you're not going to see innovation. So one of the first things we would do at the Regis company when we were doing empathy interviews to really understand the context and create a custom simulation was ask questions related to how risk-taking and failure are treated. And what were you finding most of the time? Well, for, for really big companies, there was often a disconnect between what they wanted in terms of innovation and risk-taking and how people were actually treated. And I mean, this is Eric Reese's findings too, that in, in large organizations, um, they may fund and, and give some sponsorship to small projects and give people some autonomy, give them the flexibility to go try new things, but they don't give them enough of a leash or they don't measure the right things. There needs to be accountability to prove that they're making progress. But if they, if they start to stumble, the, the funding gets pulled. This is such a loaded question. Uh, it's so huge. Um, but as we're on this topic of autonomy and being a positive thing, what are your thoughts now with the last 15 months of remote work? And I know that uh, there's so many mixed feelings on it, both from people, uh, employees and leadership, um, corporations. What do you think about all this autonomy that we have now? I heard it described, I was on a call with a number of venture capitalists and one of them described this whole COVID time and the, the remote working as the great accelerator. And I, I think it is. So there's the, I believe that's the silver lining out of all that we've been through. It's incredibly stressful and to have so much uh, disconnection from the people you're working with at such pro- prolonged you know, periods of time, it's, that's, that can be stress inducing. But on the flip side, it's forced a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders, a lot of managers to let their people go and kind of do their stuff and uh, you know, hold them accountable in different ways. So it's, it's forcing change. I've heard story after story of managers who would never let their, their teams work from mm-hmm. home and then suddenly they had to. What a great analogy, right? And I know probably Tara is nodding her head as well because Tara worked at Boomtown, an accelerator here in, in Boulder. And so, yeah, is COVID just the, the, the best accelerator ever. I mean, I know me personally, uh, I've learned so much in the last, I don't know, roughly 15 months. You know, you're touching on this idea of stress. I don't know, Tara, and I know you know this from from your experience running uh, the accelerator here in Boulder. 
there's stress there and that's how we grow, right? We need that stress. And, and so instead of looking at COVID as maybe being such a bad thing, maybe we can look at it as what a gift. I don't know that everybody would agree with me, but it's, it's a silver lining. Well, I know we're really excited to jump into what you're working on now and today because it's such a fascinating topic. Uh, but at first, I want to ask you, I mean, you have your, your whole career uh, for the most part has been in leadership and you've seen, you've done research on, you've done consulting with, uh, you've consulted for um, people on leadership challenges. Tell us before we get into what you're working on now. What is the biggest challenges that you see teams, companies, and leaders facing going into the next year, do you think? I, I believe it is the, the rapid um, changing out of the team members. So mm. the acceleration of, of turnover has caused this vicious cycle. And that's been over the past 5, 10, 15 years that with faster and faster turnover, teams can't get through the cadence of Forming, storming, norming, performing, which I referenced Tuckman's work back from the 70s. So you can't even kind of get to a place of, of really gelling with a team. You know, like my grandfather worked for GE. Long gone are the days when a big company like GE would send people to Crotonville, that was their leadership academy, for like six weeks to become a good manager. And then they'd get a 35 year return on him. And he'd be working with the same people. He was working in the space program. Today, you get stood up, you're part of a team, and you might only be working with them for four or six weeks and then people are leaving or your, your team's disbanded or has a new charter or, or direction. Um, so that's, that's been a big pressure that's facing teams and, and environments, the, the environment that leaders are operating in already. And that's, that pressure is increasing. And now it's going to be moving to kind of hyperspeed. I believe companies are rapidly hiring. They're throwing people into positions just to kind of meet demand as fast as they can. I was talking to a friend who works for, you know, it's a fairly established startup going from 6,000 to 8,000 people. They're hiring 2,000 people like in a matter of months. Wow. So just the onboarding is gonna be so challenging and onerous, much less kind of preparing people to do a good job leading their teams and within the organization and people even be able to perform basic technical functions in that environment. So it's, I, I think that's the that's the biggie. Well, I never heard four to six weeks. I thought you were going to say four to six months. Wow. <laughs> Welcome that's, to the new quick. revolutionary world, Ron. Yeah, yeah. I don't, even, I don't even get to know your middle name in four to six weeks. Well, yeah, and I, I, and Ron, I'm not, I don't mean people like leaving the company, although that's happening. People are uh -huh. moving pretty fast, but certainly teams being disbanded and, and reorganized wow. and wow. started anew. Yeah. I never experienced that in my corporate career, but but I'm getting, you know, it was six years in the rearview mirror now. So I don't know. Maybe that's the the way of the of the future. Uh, let's 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 take this conversation to what you're doing lately. I mean, what's your newest your newest venture? Um, Lead Belay, I think, is the name of your company, and it, it seems to be taken off. What's the uh, what's the why behind that, and what do you do at Lead Belay? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so, Lead Belay, the re the reason behind Lead Belay is to, not to speak too grandly, but we're losing our humanity in our work. We evolved, human beings, we're makers of heart. We, we get satisfaction out of creating things, solving problems, working together, collaborating. That's, that goes back hundreds of thousands of years in agrarian communities. That's, that's a big part of who we are as human beings. 
and it's being crushed out of our work. This kind of continual race for short-term efficiency, it's causing the processes to be put in place and for the pressures to constantly be driving for the lowest cost method to execute the short-term goal and task and challenge to hit quarterly earnings or goals or whatever it may be. And in that whole process, we're losing our humanity, which paradoxically is also hurting the efficiency of these organizations longer term. So because they can't innovate, because they don't have people who could really work together effectively with one another, can't solve problems and, and tackle big challenges. That's that's really the why behind this. So today, this is Gallup research actually, 75% of employees say that the most stressful part of their job is their boss. 85% of employees worldwide aren't engaged in their work, which is, it's a travesty. We should be getting so much value out of our work. I was actually talking to a, a executive coach recently. He's, I, I love the expression. She said, our work should be a beautiful canvas to live out our humanity, yet we're seeing the opposite happen. So I, I wanna give people a team environment, give managers an opportunity to be good leaders, to give both for themselves, for their peers and for their teams, to create a place that people really can live out and fulfill their humanity in the work that they're doing, which we should all be able to do. So that's the why behind it. And, and so I, I, I have to make the connection. I think this is what you're saying is I use some of these same statistics with my students, but this idea of so many people are not engaged at work, you're saying that good leadership can help fix that. Is that, is that kind of what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Okay. Whether you're manufacturing widgets or doing something like saving lives. I mean, it, you, you may have a grand mission that is easy to, to attach to, or it might just be about where we're all going as human beings, as individuals within the team and feeling that sense of connection. So we're, we're going to talk about how you do that, because I think all of our listeners and definitely Ron and I are curious about that. But you also kind of target the millennial group. Can you talk about that and why? Yeah, when I got started, so I was doing the research to, to begin to build what's become Lead Belay when it was still a part of the Regis company. I was a co-president. I handed off all my direct reports to the other co-president and got started with the research in early 2020. And when COVID hit, effectively lost the, the R&D budget and carved it off and raised some money and, and kept it going um, because what we're doing is, is virtual. So mm -hmm. it was a perfect time, great opportunity, actually, in many respects. So another silver lining for us, at least. Um, the approach we're taking is to put small groups of millennial managers together and, and why millennials, uh, they invest more in their own growth and development than prior generations. They want 50% more feedback than prior generations. They're digital natives. They're comfortable connecting online. It's kind of the do-it-yourself generation. They, they seek information and just kind of figure things out all the time. That's what I saw in my own work. And that's what we found through our research. So we began to focus on millennials as a group. So we're putting small groups together no two people from the same company. We have a very purposeful matching logic. So the um, we're creating a safe space by not having anyone know each other or be at risk of competing with one another or at risk of feeling embarrassed because they, they knew somebody coming into this group. Uh, then they go through this nine weeks together where we start off with what we call a rapid relationship building set of exercises to get them to really trust and connect with one another. Uh, and then they're guided by a coach over the nine weeks. They do a lot of individual work. So kind of go through a cadence that, that primes them to think about something a little bit differently. 
to do a lot of guided self-reflection, to come into these group meetings where they do um, some experiential learning, they get into really rich discussions, they problem solving kind of group workshop challenges they're going through in the real world, and they go apply things. So that's the gist of what we're doing, but the, the design is, it's, it's landed better than we even expected. It's been fantastic. People are absolutely loving it. I think about, you know, I go back, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gen, Gen X. Um, and, and I think, I remember, you know, kind of the, they said we were the me generation. And, and I, I kind of get that. We were a little bit uh, selfish. But I don't remember ever getting as much scrutiny or as many labels as, as the millennials get. Uh, I feel like they're so picked on. <laughs> So if I were to ask you, Michael, what do most people, I mean, you work with millennials, it sounds like quite a bit. And, and although you're not a millennial, I think you have some insight that maybe all of us don't, or many of us don't. What do most people get wrong about millennials in your, in your mind? Well, they are picked on. And I, I, every generation is thought that the following generation doesn't have it together. That goes back to Aristotle. I mean, it's, it's, that's not a new thing. That's that's been throughout like modern history, certainly, or recorded history. Um, I, millennials and the reason they've been criticized so much, I think, has a lot to do with the world we live in today, the digital environment, where memes take off and, and stereotypes get propagated pretty pretty quickly. But what I've seen with millennials, there's all the talk about them all wanting their trophy and all wanting to be successful and uh, believing they can have immediate success. I've, I've seen a generation that has had to compete harder than any gen generation before it by a pretty big margin, too. I mean, competition has always been kind of ratcheting up, but it, it's been a spike just to get into college, just to get a decent job. Because of that, their skills are sharp and they are they're constantly trying. They're constantly looking for ways to get better, hence the desire for more feedback than Gen Xers like me. The, the things that they've been criticized for are actually kind of the flip side of these incredible strengths that they are believing in themselves. In many ways, because they've been told they can do it, they believe that and then they go and try it. They take risks and start, you know, launch startups or do things differently than prior than the established norm. Whereas I think our generation was looking for the playbook. We talked about that a little bit ago. Like we're looking for our, what's the formula for success? What's expected of us to kind of check all the boxes and keep moving up where millennials are trying to figure it out on their own. They don't necessarily believe in, in authority um, or established norms to, to steer the ship for them. I always and, say I, I relate to millennials more than I do my own generation. All of that <laughs> resonates with me. Um, so uh, are your typical millennial clients coming in already working inside of businesses and corporations, and this is a professional development nine-week program for them, or is it millennials that are maybe job searching and saying, I want this leadership development before I go apply to a new job? Yeah, that's a great question, Tara. Uh, it's more the former. We actually want people who have active leadership responsibility now because we're asking them to apply things. So. Mm. We've had some people who were just about to step into management roles participate, and they get a lot out of it, but they feel sometimes left out in some of the discussions and the activities. So we're really trying to filter for people who have active leadership responsibility now. It doesn't have to be full-time permanent reports. It can be project leadership, matrix leadership in an organization, but people who have some leadership opportunity and can apply things. Can apply it experientially like right away. Yeah. 
brilliant. That's exactly right. And, uh, and who are your customers? Is that directly with the millennial leaders or, or do you work with corporations? Yeah, okay. great question. Our vision is to make this, we are, we are, we've built a program that is about the person. It's about the millennial new manager, new leader in the program, not about their boss, not about their company, their organization's priorities, which you know also means that they're gonna get more out of it and ultimately that will be good for their organization. But we want to target the individual long-term to get short-term traction, we're marketing to organizations. So with that, we're not making any changes to the program. And we're very clear about that up front. Like, this is what it is. It's a nine week experience. We give people a tremendous amount of autonomy. It's like, it's more akin to putting somebody into a, an executive coaching program where everything is confidential between the, the individual and the coach than a, any kind of traditional corporate learning program. All right, I'm the CEO of a, of a I don't know, a multi-million dollar company. Convince me why I should invest in my people to teach them leadership. What's your, what's your answer to that? What's your pitch? Well, if you, if you if you don't, they're not going to be as effective. You're going to have really rapid turnover. They're, they're people they're going to leave, and the members of their team are going to leave much faster than they would otherwise. That's the kind of easy, easy answer. On a at a deeper level, they're not going to solve problems. They're not going to give you what you want in terms of actually taking a problem and figuring it out, because that's what leaders that's what senior leaders in organizations typically complain about for their people. So if you really want them to step up and exercise some autonomy and and kind of live into their full potential, you need to develop them. I want to dig in a little bit on uh, some of the methodologies that, um, that, that you work with, with these millennial leaders. And you mentioned uh, a bit ago about creating a safe space for employees. And, and it, it takes us to a word that Ron and I both love and love to talk about, which is psychological safety. And, you know, it's amazing, not everyone actually knows what that means or why it's important. And I think people are really starting to understand that a lot more today. So when it comes to creating that psychologically safe space in an, not just an organization, but even drilling down to the teams um, and coming from the leaders themselves, talk about how we create that, what actual things are leaders doing to do that? And how is communication involved and how does it uh, impact effectiveness? Yeah, it's, it's a big question. It's a really good one. Um, psychological safety is one of the, the anchors of this program. We have you know, three lenses that we look at leadership problems and challenges through. Psychological safety is the first, it's the most important. So psychological safety means that uh, the, the members of a group feel comfortable speaking up, asking questions, admitting they don't understand something, challenging the status quo uh, in practical terms. If you don't have an environment where people can do that, mistakes are gonna be made. Poor assumptions are gonna be made. People are not gonna be creative. They're gonna kind of clutch up and, and uh, instead of seeking clarity or kind of bringing their best self to any problem or challenge, they're gonna instead try to kind of execute to whatever they think is expected of them. So in a practical terms, that's what psychological safety means. So to, to create that, and we, we can all think of times when we felt psychologically safe, when we're with a group of people that we really trust and we don't mind being silly in front of, we, we aren't worried about being embarrassed. Maybe we'll do something a little embarrassing, but, but it's not gonna sting or last. Versus those times when we felt like 
we're holding our breath and you're on guard and you can feel your blood pressure rise. That's what a lack of psychological safety feels like, showing up and being fearful. Um, Brene Brown does a beautiful job talking about this. Um, as is Amy Edmondson, if you're familiar with her work, she's done probably the most extensive research about psychological safety. Of course, Simon Sinek's talked about it too. So getting to an environment of psychological safety is the most important thing that a team leader, a new emerging leader can do in getting the people to feel safe. And you don't do that without treating the people on your team like human beings and really getting to know them, understand who they are, where they're going, what they're challenged by. I could feel like really soft stuff in many respects. And that's why I think it's been poo-pooed in some corners, but you've got to do it to be able to get the, the best out of people. You don't build trust without without really digging in and understanding the members of your team. Gosh, so many people will push back on that, unfortunately, and say, I don't have time to get to know my the hopes and dreams and who my people are. What do you say to that? The, the research is, it runs far and wide. Um, the Army, I was actually on a, a camp out not that long ago, actually, with a guy who's been in the Army for 33 years, and he was interviewed in part of a pretty extensive research study that they did about building cohesive teams and they use slightly different language, but it was the same stuff. You've got to build trust to get to know people. You've got to understand and know the human beings that you're working with and feel, they have to feel cared for and cared about. That's language that we use. We feel like uh, we've succeeded. If the, the participants are programs, their direct reports feel cared for and cared about. They all understand what each, each other are doing and why, and, and uh, kind of where they're going as a, as a team. Yeah, and for any listeners that maybe are not convinced yet, um, Google did a, a lot of research on this, and they they called it Project Aristotle, which I'm sure you're you're familiar with, Michael. Uh, where they identified the number one thing for high performing teams is psychological safety. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Tons of tons of evidence out there. If that's too touchy feely for you, I don't know. Get out of the business of of uh, leading people. Is, is what. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You, what, I don't know what the answer is, but one of my professors said, "If you don't like people, don't get into leadership." Let me ask you this, Michael. So let's say, and I get this when I do coaching. Uh, maybe we have a team. You know, it's a small team, five six people, and the people in the team don't feel like there's psychological safety. They're afraid to speak up for for any you know number of reasons. And so, if I'm that leader of that team, and I've I've, I've you know, at least come to the conclusion that I need to create psychological safety in my team. What would be your advice? What are my first steps to get there? How do I, how do I start that process? Uh, the first thing you need to do is make sure you're having one-on-ones regularly with every member of your team that are about them. There are some simple rules about those. You really should be doing that at least once, like I said, once a month, and you should be listening two thirds of the time at a minimum. Questions you should be asking should not be status update questions. They should be about how that person's doing. It could be start off with stuff about the work, but where do they want to go in their career? There's an expression that I, I really love about holding talent with an open hand. If you really know the members of your team, where they want to go in a few years, it's usually beyond your team or beyond your organization typically, that you, can, you get that and you give them the, the, the um, permission to talk about it. And then you start thinking about, all right, great. So you wanna work for 
X company in another state in a few, a few years, or you want to go into a completely different career, what are some things you can work on today in this role that I can help you work on, give you some stretch roles? It starts to lead down this path of kind of opening up all kinds of possibilities where you can demonstrate care for them. Uh, they're going to feel cared for. And paradoxically, they're actually going to be more likely to want to stick with you over the long term. That is paradoxically, because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, if I've got some A players on my team, Mike, I don't want to help them leave. But if you actually treat them as human beings, invite the conversation, it's it's just a completely different world you open up. So go there. Yeah, a lot Have of times the they end up staying, right? That's right. They end up staying. Or you're certainly not going to be surprised when they leave because you're going to be talking about it all the way up until the point it happens. I've messed up so many times in my career. I, I wish I'd had this kind of practical development and help when I was younger and earlier on in, in leading people professionally. Uh, but I can think of countless times where I had people quit and leave and I was shocked. I was completely surprised. But it's because I, you know, we weren't creating the environment to give them the opportunity to really speak up and talk about what they were liking, what they didn't like, where they really wanted to go. It was having that deeper conversation. You know, I was just, uh, we were having a conversation on our other podcast, Forging Metal, uh, with a grief counselor who actually came in and said, we are all suffering grief from the last 15 months of COVID and grief really equals loss. We've mm. lost, even from our commute driving into work, that was stolen from us, right? And that the Gen Z um, a group of people going into the workforce now, leaving the universities and going into the workforce, they're really going in looking for uh, employers that will create space for this loss, this grief. Do you see any kind of um, correlations between the two generational work? I know you work with millennials, but do you see any differences or similarities in what Gen Zs should be going in and looking for as leaders or becoming leaders themselves? Oh, it's a great question. And there's, there's not a lot of research yet about how Gen Zs kind of look, behave, perform in, in the workplace relative to prior generations. Um, I mean, most of the stuff that I've seen about Gen Zs, they, they don't think millennials are very cool for all host of reasons, which has been true of every- I've kind of, heard that as well. <laughs> the opposite end of each generation thinking the next one doesn't have it together. They, each generation doesn't think the ones before it are very cool. Um, so so I, don't, I don't know if there are stark differences that, that have emerged yet or that we're seeing, but they're gonna be coming into a workplace that suffers from many of the same challenges that millennials have, have suffered from. I don't know if I mentioned the book, Can't Even, how millennials became the burnout generation, if you've read it. Oh, no. It's, it's really quite good. Um, it's, Anne Helen Peterson wrote it, so Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And she does a great job of pulling together a lot of kind of the facts and history and the story of the past hundred years and what's happened in our economy to kind of drive down income levels for people entering the workforce. And or this result, that's been the net result. So you know, millennials make 20% less real income than Gen Xers did at the same point in their career, which is, I mean, that's a stunning, it's a huge gap. So Gen Z is going to face that even to a greater degree. So it's, they're coming into a challenging environment. What it means is the margin for error is diminishing continually. The margin for error for them personally and certainly for their teams. So it heightens the importance that they 
if they do have a chance to step into leadership, that they do that they do these things right, that they spend the time investing in relationships with people and getting to know the people on their team, understanding people's kind of where they're going and their desires, um, working on their communication, understanding how to build the cadences for accountability and, uh, and giving feedback that don't erode the psychological safety, ensuring alignment with the team. It also means though, that they need to be really thoughtful in particular about who they're gonna work for. When you're, when you're interviewing for a job, you're, you're not just being interviewed, you need to be thinking about the boss and who is gonna be mentoring you. And I would in a heartbeat give up some income to be working for the right person. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I hear, I hear from uh, some of the university students that they're going out. And one of the big questions is, I want to know, they're asking this of the companies that they're interviewing with. I want to know how you've treated your employees over the mm-hmm. last year. And what a great, I'm like that. I would have never had the guts well, to say something yeah. like that at 22 years old. Um, I just think yeah. that's amazing. Well, and the differences are so stark right now too, because it, everyone's kind of caught flat-footed in many respects, suddenly working online virtually, if you weren't already doing it before, which is the vast majority of organizations and teams, um, how did they respond? I mean, it's a really great question. Did they make space and uh, did allow time for kind of the water cooler talk to happen in Zoom meetings where because people aren't seeing each other in the office and having that literal water cooler talk? Yeah, and and I think, Mike, if, I, if I'm not wrong, um, and I know... It varies, but I think that you say there's not a lot of data on, on Gen Z's yet. And I think the oldest Gen Z's are what, 21 years old, roughly right now. Is that, I think, is that... I think they're a little bit older than that, little but not older. much. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that might be the 24, 23, 24, 25. Yeah. That, that's yeah. why we're, we're not seeing much data out there yet. So, you know, we talk about all these generations and if you're not used to talking about this, do a Google search and you'll see all the breakdowns, but uh, just, just to help you out there. Here's the thing that, that fascinates me, Mike, is, we, you know, the big thing with millennials is they're the biggest generation since the baby boomers. And I think they might even be bigger than the, the baby boomer generation. I'm not sure, but I know they're right there with them. And so we have this one really huge generation, the baby boomers that are getting ready to retire. And then you have the millennials that essentially are going to take the place of these baby boomers. What do you think? I mean, is there going to be drastic changes as the millennials start to assume these positions of leadership? Do you see a drastically changing uh, maybe workforce? Oh, that's a great question. And I'm trying to disaggregate how much of that is. The, the workforce is changing dramatically for lots and lots of reasons. How much of that is generational? and a result of the way that people were raised and, and kind of some of the intrinsic differences across generations versus just the nature of work evolving with the rise of kind of digital, uh, which is, and, and so many options of that. What, what we've seen with millennials is that they, they do, they exhibit at least externally a lot more care. Like they want to be parts of organizations that have, have purpose and meaning and, and are doing something good for the world. They are more tied to and connected to um, global causes. So I, I think that'll have an impact. I do think that that makes a difference. Well, Mike, uh, what a pleasure talking to you. Um, and if people want to learn more, they can go to leadbelay.com and, uh, and see what you guys are doing there. And especially with leadership development for the millennial age group. 
Uh, any other ways that you want to kind of funnel them your way or anything that you need help with from the community? Uh, I mean, we're we're tr- right now trying to get traction. We're growing. So if if you if, if any listener has an organization, they would love to give support to some of their new new managers. Um, we're happy to help. Our program is intended to democratize really high impact experiences. So it is exceptionally affordable for this kind of a of a thing. And for individuals, if you're looking to invest in yourself or you believe your company, you could expense to your company what we're doing, reach out. We'd love to we'd love to have you. And I say thank you for doing it. We need more folks like you out there doing, uh, in my opinion, good work like this. We we need, I agree with you, there's a vacuum in, in good leadership and, and we need to fill that vacuum. Well, thank you both, Ron and Tara, for the conversation and, and thoughtful questions. Really enjoyed this. Absolutely. We've got a last question for you, though, so you can't bail out just yet. And that oh, is, right. okay from all your vast knowledge and over the years and this conversation in general. <laughs> um, what, uh, what's on the frontier of leadership? What do you see the future holding and um, whether it's things that are on, uh, on the forefront or things we needed to get better at? What, uh, what is the future of leadership, do you think? Well, you're giving me too much credit, um, but so many things. I mean, we're, we're seeing a dramatically and radically changing world and environment. Um, tr- traditional capitalism and you know, every, every great society, every society in hi- human history has had elements of capitalism and socialism, right? But the, the balance is changing as we see the, the need for kind of uh, a lot of human roles going away in the work we're doing and other jobs certainly rising up. Um, the shift seems okay for the near term in, in many ways. McKinsey did some great research about this that, that in 20, 30 years, most of the jobs people are doing haven't even been thought of right now. Uh, and the jobs people are doing today are gonna be completely gone. So that transition though, is gonna cause all kinds of disruption, all kinds of uncertainty. So when you think about the volatility, uncertainty, the kind of VUCA world we live in, it's accelerating, not decelerating. And it's hard to keep up and it's easy to get lost to feel disenchanted. So that means that all the things we're talking about, this human connection within the team, uh, whether you're leading the team or you're a member of the team, creating an environment where people can, can feel comfortable with each other, it's more important than ever because we're going to have to tackle these problems together. Thanks for spending your valuable time with us this week. If you enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from these conversations. We'll see you next time.